Time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. This is a message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Older adults and people of any age who have serious underlying medical conditions are at higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19. If you are at higher risk, you should stay home as much as possible and avoid close contact with people who are sick to protect yourself. Call your doctor if you have concerns about COVID-19 and your medical condition or if you get sick. For more information, visit cdc.gov. program. The Tom Sumner Program takes a look back at 2020, Monday and Tuesday, December 28th and 9th, with a two-part special called 2020 Highlights, Not Just COVID. Here, special guests provide commentary and analysis about the Mueller report, impeachment, the State of the Union, State of the State, virtual political conventions and debates, plus civil unrest, and Sheriff Chris Swanson's response to local demonstrations, and a whole lot more. Listen December 28th and 9th because there was more to 2020 than COVID-19. Stream the show from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com, repeating online all day and night. Or tune in on 92.1 FM in Flint at 9 a.m. and p.m. both nights. That's 2020 highlights, not just COVID, December 28th and 9th on the Tom Sumner Program. What do comic books have to do with Susan B. Anthony, Stormy Daniels, and Congressman John Lewis? Find out New Year's Eve 2020 on the Tom Sumner Program. Author Mark Schulman talks about comic book biographies of Walt Disney and Susan B. Anthony. The creative team from Tidal Wave Productions talk about a new comic book series called Stormy Daniels Space Force. Plus, former congressional aide Andrew Aiden talks about developing a three-part comic book series about the civil rights movement called March with Congressman John Lewis. The Tom Sumner 
Sumner program continues our look back at 2020 with comic books for New Year's Eve, streaming live from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com, repeating online all day and night, simulcast on 92.1 FM in Flint at 9 a.m. and p.m. Happy New Year from the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the author of six books and an award-winning sports reporter for the New York Times. He's uh, turned his interests now to how saints are made in a new book called The Saint Makers Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. His name is Joe Drape. He joins me by phone. Joe, welcome to the show. Tom, thanks for having me this morning. How does a an award-winning sports writer for the New York Times take an interest in how saints are made? Well, that's a good question. Probably not a lot of them at the news desk at the uh, Times. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all, Tom. You know, what happened with this one is all my books have been in sports. And one of them, I moved my family to Kansas in 2008 to write about a high school football team. And it's there. It was rural Kansas, center of Kansas, Smith Center. And I heard about this priest named Father M.L. Capon. And he died at the age of 35 in a Korean prisoner of war camp. And he was subsequently awarded the Medal of Honor by President Obama. He was, had this just wonderful biography of a regular farm boy who found his calling as a military chaplain went to war both in World War II where he got the Bronze Star and then in Korea where he ultimately met his death, but not before saving hundreds of soldiers' lives and basically keeping their spirits up without ever picking a rifle up. So he was revered in this part of the country. At the same time, they were trying to make him a saint. And I'd grown up parochial and Jesuit educated, and even I didn't really know what a saint was. So that sort of set me off uh, down the path. I was thinking about this guy. I knew he had a remarkable biography. I was curious about the saint-making process, which I discovered was as Byzantine and as rooted in ancient history as you would imagine. And then the third component sort of came together after I got the first two underway is that I realized that, you know, my faith was not in bad shape, but I just sort of lost the rhythm. Since I'm a sports writer, I'm going to use a metaphor that I had the yips. All of a sudden, I couldn't make a two-foot putt when it came to talking to God. So that set me off on this, and it's been a, a really rewarding experience. And how do you how do you start digging into that? Because I was reading something said, 1.2 billion Catholics, very few yeah. of them understand what goes on in the saint-making process. Where do you even start to look, and and how much access can you get? Well, the reporting took me from Kansas to the halls of the Vatican, and that was fun in its own right. Here's what I, I had a good start, and as a news reporter, how you go down any past stories, you just go as wide as possible and just vacuum up every bit of information, read everything you can. Uh, I was really aided on Father Capon's case because there was a priest in Kansas named Father John Hotz who was in charge of basically 
assembling the information to make his case for sainthood. And he did it to such an extent that he sent 8,272 pages of testimony and documents to the Vatican. So, you know, there is raw material about his life. And then I went to the Rome and talked to the congregations of the causes of saints, and they gave me the process. I talked to several what they called postulators, which are canon lawyers. They're lawyers that specialize in this sort of ecclesiastical uh, ritual and routine. And, you know, I was able to put it together. And then there's academics who study. And from them, I've got fun facts like there's probably 10,000 saints. Many of them never existed. Uh, half of them are in Italy. Definitely there's a home field advantage if you're Italian to become <laughs> a saint. Uh, that the average time elapsed between a candidate's death and his eventual canonization is 181 years. So, you know, I was able to put together uh, enough of the, the process, and then I just hung it on characters. There was a canon lawyer who has Father Capon's cause in Rome called Dr. Andrea Ambrose. And what a canon lawyer does is basically he's part lobbyist, he's part uh, defense lawyer, he's part uh, PR man for him. He gets in the halls of the Vatican and makes the case for the candidates he's representing. And, uh, you know, that was the other thing I discovered, Tom, is this is not cheap. Anybody who's ever engaged a lawyer in anything knows it's not cheap. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. And, uh, and uh, you know, this cause is up to about $600,000. There are causes that have cost uh, more than a million. And, uh, you know, what I guess surprised me is it's also – sort of a PR marketing tool that the Catholic Church uses. And we have Pope John Paul II to thank for that. He recognized that it was an under, underutilized uh, tool, that saints are the Catholic Church's superheroes. And if you give people they can ad admire and imitate and relate to, you're going to reach more people. Well, and and also it puts the spotlight on on what many could argue would be the best of the Catholic Church. Absolutely, Tom. And you know that's what there's two components to would be saints. There's uh, life worth imitating, a life led in virtue, and what I soon discovered is I think the second part is even more important. They've got to be relatable. You have to see a little bit of yourself in these people that makes you want to emulate them. And that's why a Kansas farm boy priest who went to the military uh, resonates with so many people because that's very simple every day. You know, these are the people that make up America. And if they can look at Father Emil Capon and say, here's a guy who embodied courage, service, and faith, and did it quietly. That, that was the remarkable thing about this man, is the Muslim soldiers loved him, the Jewish soldiers loved him, uh, the atheists loved him, the Protestants loved him. And it was because he never really forced himself on anybody. He was very concerned about the person as who they were, and that they had some sort of faith that they believed in. And 
you know, those are all relatable things. And I certainly didn't write this book intending it to come out in the midst of a pandemic and a division <laughs> among um, po- politics. But he truly is sort of a saint or a man for our times because he dealt with absolute cruelty and sickness in a Korean prison camp and was able to transcend it and lift men up with him to transcend it. I mean, Tom, they were fed a fistful of birdseed a day. So what Father Capon did was he went and stole food. Uh, They had no clothes. He would sew socks together to make shirts and coats. Uh, He was a truly resourceful guy. And, uh, you know, he's a guy who looked past everybody's divisions and said, hey, you're good and I can see your goodness, and then was able to emulate and, you know, exude goodness himself. So, uh, you know, he's really kind of a guy to lift us all up right now. So is that um, one of the primary qualifications for sainthood is to be an ordinary person uh, who does extraordinary things? That's where, yes, that's very simply and well put. That's that's what it is, is, you know, uh, the point of being a saint is anybody can do it. And that's what the church and Pope John Paul II, who made more saints than anybody else, 482 of them, more than all of his predecessors together. That's an emphasis he put on it, is that, you know, he wants the everyday to become saints and to bridge that gap that you don't have to be a, you know, have extraordinary powers that we can all do our part to lead a saintly life. And at any given time, as you as you were researching this, Joe, what did you find out about at, at any given time? How many people are up for sainthood? Is there a short list? How how uh, how does that happen? There's 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 twenty five hundred or more right now in the pipeline. And what happens, Tom, is cases hot they go dormant and you know a lot of decision making is made on sort of what what does the world need what does the catholic church need and i'll give you an example of that the last couple months a 15 year old italian boy who died in 2006 a kid named carlos acutis was beatified and that puts you right on the doorstep of the sainthood that means one miracle you were involved in has been approved. Now you're waiting for a second miracle. And he was basically reached that record time from 2006 to 2020. Now, I'm sure his case was strong and his virtue was, you know, you can't argue with it. But it was also about the fact that he was a computer genius who went viral for hunting down miracles online. And so the Catholic Church, that's good for business to say, okay, we are modern. We have this 15-year-old millennial saint. And you see them deploy these sort of strategic decisions in various parts of the uh, world where either they want to convert more followers or they feel like they have to shore it up. Uh, Latin America, there's been a run on Latin American saints. Right now, two areas they've identified is Asia and Africa. So, uh, you know, those causes that are in the pipeline, they get a 
harder, quicker look. And, you know, they, they are not fast-tracked, but they're put on the schedule a little quicker because you have so many in the pipeline. More with New York Times sports reporter and author Joe Drape, straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, 
or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. TomSumnerProgram.com TomSumnerProgram.com program. The Tom Sumner Program takes a look back at 2020, Monday and Tuesday, December 28th and 9th, with a two-part special called 2020 Highlights, Not Just COVID. Here, special guests provide commentary and analysis about the Mueller report, impeachment, the State of the Union, State of the State, virtual political conventions and debates, plus civil unrest, and Sheriff Chris Swanson's response to local demonstrations, and a whole lot more. Listen December 28th and 9th because there was more to 2020 than COVID-19. Stream the show from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com, repeating online all day and night. Or tune in on 92.1 FM in Flint at 9 a.m. and p.m. both nights. That's 2020 highlights, not just COVID, December 28th and 9th on the Tom Sumner Program. More with New York Times sports reporter and author Jill Drape straight ahead and and what about the case for uh for us um for as as big and influential a country it is and for as many catholics as are here and i i might suggest maybe turning a little away from the church it seems sort of surprising to me that we only have two saints well, if we only have two born on American soil. There's seven in all. Oh, that's, and some that's of right. those, Yeah, but they came, you know, from other countries. They were missionaries over here. And that is a dearth. I was surprised that there were so few American saints. And, you know, what I discovered is, first of all, we think of ourselves as a young country. In the Vatican's eyes, we're even younger than our own self-perception. Until 1908, we were just considered a territory by the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, we only had one archbishop, which is the authority here. You know, now there's dozens of them across the U.S., but we only had uh, one until 1938. They added three more. So you have that problem. Uh, the other thing that undercuts is, is what you said, that we do have a Catholic Church that's fairly strong. So, uh, you know, there's no real rush to shore up the Catholic Church here. I think in Father Capon's case, and then the other Americans in general, I, the priest, being a priest, is not a good thing. The rest of the world blames the sexual abuse scandal on the American Church. And, you know, that was said to me, and I do I just know that to be true, and I write about it. 
And the second thing is, you know, you alluded to it, our power. Uh, we are large military power, just like a lot of the world doesn't like us for our capitalism or for whatever else. Uh, we aren't popular when it comes to how we use that power. So I think that undercuts some of the American saints as well, or American candidacies. But yeah, it, it is something that it is an imbalance, uh, you know, jealousy. I don't know what exactly it is, but there's really no rush to start canonizing a bunch of American saints. Were you surprised at, at how uh, involved the infrastructure for um selecting a saint was we we always have the impression that saints sort of pop up out of nowhere it's it's like somebody does somebody uh, you know something extraordinary and and then they become a saint and then nobody thinks about saints again until the next one well and i was surprised and i was surprised at the evolution i mean there's, in the beginning, it was more or less a voice vote. If me and you decided one of our neighbors was a man of holiness, we just would call him a saint, and that would be handed down the oral tradition. You know, some of the most famous saints really didn't exist. St. Christopher, the patron saint of travel, is by a legend. And the legend is he was a giant who lived next to a river. His job was to carry people across the river, thus the travel. One day he picks up a toddler, three or four-year-old boy, hardest crossing ever. He almost drowns. The kid was just unbearable weight. When he gets him to the other side, the young boy says, I'm Jesus. You carried heaven, earth, my church, and the world on your shoulders. That's why it was so hard. But, you know, he didn't exist. That was a legend. So in the 1500s, the popes, the Vatican said, okay, we do need to put a little more rigorous system in here and do put some regimen and discipline here. And so they came up with a thing that you had to have four miracles. And in the eyes of the church, a miracle has two components. One, it's a remarkable recovery from death or near death that cannot be explained by medicine or science. But the most, most important component is this recovery occurred because your family, your community prayed to a particular uh, person, in this case, Father Capon, for him to intercede with God on the loved one's behalf and save him. And that shows that Father Capon is in heaven next to God and has basically the, the pull to pull something like this off. So, you know, in the beginning, you took four of those. Again, it goes back to John Paul, too, is that he decided that was too cumbersome. But so we're only going to make it two. And then St. Saint Francis, Pope Francis, has in some cases uh, canonized saints with just one miracle. So the, the the thing is evolving. Uh, the 181 years, I think, shows that it's taken seriously. That what does happen, Tom, is that a theological panel is convened from experts all over the world to look at the life and the virtue. A historical panel of experts is convened to make sure that the story was accurate and in context, and then a medical panel to investigate the miracles. And these things take time, and, uh, you know, they're vetted very, very rigorously. 
what constitutes a miracle by today's standards? You suggested that uh, uh, coming back from a, a death or a near-death experience is is one possibly, but but what kinds of things might this 15-year-old be finding in his search of the internet for miracles? Well, a, a miracle. The miracle still is something happens that that is praying. The 15-year-old lived a life of virtue and helped others become saints. Now that that was what his deal. But to get beatified, somebody had to pray to him to intervene, and they're usually all medical, Tom. Father Capon's case, it's a pole vaulter, a college-age pole vaulter who cracked his skull literally in half, uh, was on a machine. They thought, no way he's going to come back, and if he does, it'll be in a vegetative state. And, you know, they put a Facebook page up. His parish prayed for him. The lobby of the hospital was there all praying to Father Capon. And miraculously, he came to barely anything wrong after about 30 days. So, uh, you know, that's one of the miracles they're pitching. And the other involves a 12-year-old youth soccer player, a young girl who collapsed one day on a field and goes to the hospital for 87 days. Don't really know what's wrong with her. She's on a later. She's on kidney machines. And they take her off thinking that... Uh, you know, they're going to let her die humanely. And she opens her eyes immediately and breathes on her own. She begins recognizing people within hours, and then she's talking the next day. And, you know, as remarkable as those sounds, the investigators then come to them, come to the doctors, and the doctors have to admit, and they did admit in both cases, that there's no medical explanation for this to happen. Uh, you know, we did this, this, and this. Nothing worked. Uh, they were dead, near death or as near as death as possible. We didn't expect them to survive, and they, here they survived. You said that, that the miracles are typically medical. Is is that because those are easier to prove in theological terms? You, there are measurements that that say whether science did it or faith did it? Yes, and I, I'd say they're easier to prove in secular terms. I mean, you know, the miracles, uh, you know, and I'm just kind of making this up. I mean, turning water into wine, I don't think could be proved or could be explained by a magician's trick or something like that. I mean, uh, the medical thing is there is a clear act that occurred. There's... Uh, a fact set that you can lay over them and they can be investigated. So I, that's why they're medical. Yeah, it just seems like there's, uh, you know, there are ways to, to measure and verify and it would be very difficult, you, you know, in the water turning into wine example that, um, you know, that would be difficult to prove that it that it wasn't a stunt of some sort. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in the process of doing this, you, you said it strengthened your your faith a little bit, or, or honed it a little bit. Um, Joe, do you believe that there are miracles that aren't 
being measured and proven by this process? Uh, yes, I do, Tom. That's a that's a great question, and uh, you know, I think there's everyday miracles that happen and occurrences and coincidences that uh, are put in our way and should be regarded as such. And you know, a minor miracle that I wrote this book, and I don't think it's it's by accident. It was something that stuck with me in 2015. You know, I first heard him in 2008. In 2015, an editor asked me if I'd ever thought of doing anything outside sports. And this immediately popped into my head. You know, I hadn't been thinking about it. Uh, and then it was, I think it popped in my head is because somebody, God, my higher power, whatever faith anybody has, wanted me to explore my my state of affairs when it came to spirituality and you know that's what set me off on this is that uh you know i'll use my one of my sports metaphors i had the yips i couldn't make a foot putt when it came to connecting with god i had all the tools i'd been educated in it i knew prayers and all that but something wasn't really connecting correctly for me and that set me off, you know, Father Capon set me off on a search, and I read the books of my youth, I looked for new things, and it really didn't come clear to me what had happened until I had lunch with a Jesuit priest, a guy named Jim Martin, and he asked me if I prayed. And I said, yeah, and he said, how? And I said, our fathers, Hail Marys, the usual things. He said, what do you pray for? And I said, nothing really, I guess gratitude. And he said, well... You have a teenage son now. If something was bothering him or he was troubled, wouldn't you want him to come to you and talk to you about it? And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, that's what God wants you to do. And he asked me a question, which I'm embarrassed to even repeat right now. He said, have you ever thought of praying to Father Capone? And in all that time, it had never occurred to me to pray to him. And, uh, you know, that's what it was. I guess my epiphany was I wasn't putting effort in being present and searching for an authentic spiritual dialogue. And, you know, I'm very careful about this. I'm not saved. I'm not, you know, on my way to sainthood by any means, but I'm more aware that I need to put more effort into this aspect of my life. And I think that just makes me a better husband, father, neighbor, you know, and, and I have, I have more bad days than I have good days, but the fact that even try to get up thinking let's do th- let's do things right today, you know, gives me a, a little more comfort. Are you a lifelong? Would you consider yourself a lifelong Catholic, Joe? Yes, I, I am, and you know, I'm a cultural Catholic too. I mean, I grew up in a parish where uh, everybody was involved. I sent my son to a similar place and we did the PTAs and went on the field trips uh, you know to me being Catholics very much about community and knowing your neighbors and trusting your neighbors that you share similar values so yes I am uh, but I also you know I'm open whatever anybody's faith is is great whatever higher power they look up to and just you know, I grew up this way, so I don't think there's one true way. Well, I, I, 
I asked that question really to kind of set up this one. Were you surprised when you started researching and writing this book to find out how much there was uh, going on in the Catholic Church that you hadn't learned about? Yeah, I was surprised, but it also reinforced some things that I already knew. I mean, I wasn't happy with aspects of the Church, of how they handled the sexual abuse scandal. Uh, I think they should be more inclusive of people. Uh, What it reinforced is it's an old bureaucracy, like centuries-old bureaucracy, run by white men, well, you really you got to you got to be a little careful there, Joe, or you might end up a Protestant. <laughs> well, you know, that, that's that's exactly that's why you know the Protestants. I do remember that from my catechism education is that the Catholics are the one true Church in in quote, quotation marks because it traces all the way back to Jesus, and all the Protestants were offshoots that got mad at the Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, I I write about this in my sort of search for a better understanding. A friend of mine's nine years old, a guy named Bob Byrne, and he kind of set me straight on this. He said, look, we're the church, the people, me, you, your family. The guys in Rome aren't the church. I mean, they're the, the bureaucracy, but people are the church. And I think that gave me great comfort and reinforced things that I already knew is that, uh, you know, people are what bring it up, not rules and regulations. My guest is uh, Joe Drape. He is uh, an award-winning sports reporter. And uh, yet that's very different from the book he has just written, The Saint Makers, Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. Um, Joe, I was just wondering, is is this book a one-off, or are there other stories from the church that maybe you might consider telling? Boy, Tom, you sound like my editor. <laughs> 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 you know, I, I don't know at this point. Um, it opened a great many avenues to things I'm curious about. But at the same time, you know, there's things I'm curious about in the sports world. And I've started a news side, too, when I was a young reporter. So, I, I, you know, I just look for good stories, no matter where, what genre they fall in. And... You know, this is kind of fresh and new out in the world. Uh, I'll think about this and see what else comes down the path. And, you know, I, I this will be, this is my seventh book. And I tell people who, one who, who asked me about book writing and should I or shouldn't I, and you know, the, the thing I say to them is you better really be curious and love your subject because you're going to spend an awful lot of time with it. And if you don't, and it doesn't interest you, it's just work. It's chopping wood, and that's no fun. Right. What? Um, <laughs> what's the next bundle of wood you're going to chop, Joe? I, I'm not really sure at this point, Tom. I, uh, I'm just you curious. Know, uh, you know, sometimes yeah. people will have you know a project, uh, you know, already in the works when a book comes out. 
Well, it, actually, what I'm doing right now is working on a uh, mini-series adaptation of a previous book I did about Jimmy Winkfield, the last black jockey to win the Kentucky Derby. Did it in 1903, but that's the least interesting thing about him. He went to Russia. He uh, was a member of the Tsar's court. He fought the Bolsheviks and saved 300 horses on like a lonesome dove trail ride. He went to Paris during the Jazz Age, became a celebrity there, got run out at World War II, came back to Depression America, where he was not even acknowledged because he was black, and you know eventually made it back to Paris. That That is the thing that I've been working on currently. Interesting. Um, Joe, we're just about out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and about your work, past, present, and future. Um, do you have a website? I don't have a website. I have a Twitter feed, at Joe Drape. And, uh, you know, the book is available in your local bookstore. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's called The Saint Makers. And you can go to the New York Times and see my work there, too. Does uh, working at the New York Times give you any sway with uh, uh, who decides what becomes a New York Times bestseller? No, not at all. <laughs> in fact, uh, it's hard to even get reviewed in my own pages. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, it's actually one of those things that works against you because they don't want to sh- look like they show favoritism. Uh, nobody on staff can really review you, so they have to go out and get somebody outside to do it. So, uh, oh, that's you funny. know, it, things that you think are perks are really handicaps. Well, I you don't seem like somebody who's terribly handicapped, Joe. And I appreciate <laughs> you spending this time with me this morning. Best of luck with the book. Um, happy holidays. Same to you. Take care. See you now. That was uh, Joe Drape. He is, uh, well, uh, uh, the author of six books, all kind of related to his award-winning sports reporting at the New York Times. Uh, But he has a new book called The Saint Makers, Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. We're going to take a uh, break. We'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
And she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on that pair of buffs with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit mission, throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch, we got Big Gretch at all. You can find her in the press, under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress, yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Greg. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Greg. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Greg. Big Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. We want to say hello. We want to see you smile. We'd like to sing some good old Christmas songs. With songs about Osetta and his reindeer sleigh. And gee, I just can't wait until it's Christmas Day. We're gonna set you wise, we love to harmonize. And if we had our way, we'd never stop. We'll say hello, we'll see you smile, and we'll sing some good old Christmas songs. We'll say hello. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room.
Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom Bodette from Manger 6. We know you've been traveling a lot this holiday season, and you've probably been told there's no room at the end. Well, that's just not the case here at Manger 6. Why, for just 29 drachma, we'll put you up in a warm, comfortable stable with plenty of fresh milk for the newborn. There's even individual stalls for your mules, camels, or whatever you happen to be driving across a desert. And in case unexpected visitors decide to drop in on you, shepherds, wise men, holy ghosts, it's not a problem at Manger 6. There's plenty of frankincense and myrrh to go around. This is Tom Bodette from Manger 6 reminding you, there's always room at this inn. We'll even leave a star out for you. Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. One by to see my minister yesterday. You know what my minister told me? He was saying how much pressure women are under from the devil and how the devil just hounds women. You know, that's rough too, being a minister. I mean, he told me, he said, You're coming here complaining about your problems, and I gotta wage this constant battle against the devil. I said, Yeah, Rev. He told me his wife came in the house a few days before and she had this box. And on the side of this box was written the name of a very exclusive dress shop. The lowest dress was $85. That was on sale. (laughs) So she walks in the house and Rev says, another dress? You bought another dress? This is ridiculous. That's the third dress this week. And his wife tells him, the devil made me buy this dress. (laughs) Said, I didn't want to buy no dress. The devil kept following me. I was going down the street going, mm-hmm. And the devil kept following me, and he kept telling me how good I look. <laughs> Rev said, I'm not going for that. He said, every time you do something wrong, you blame it on the devil. He said, you blamed it on the devil when you ran the car to the side of the church. <laughs> it was the devil. You wasn't there. How do you know? He grabbed the steering wheel out of my hand. Rev said, well, why didn't you step on the brake? Said, because when he grabbed the steering wheel, I tried to kick him. You can't kick him and step on the brake at the same time. Said, we had a big fight. And that's why I was in the back seat when y'all got the call. Rev said, well, how'd the devil get you to buy the dress? She said, I was going out of Sneaked up behind me, sneak. I heard him tip it to you know. I didn't want to look around because I knew it was the devil, you know. <laughs> the devil came up behind me, said, he said, uh, say mama, look at the dress in the window there. <laughs> said, that's your size too. He said, it's on sale too. Got a lot of them flowers in it like you like, you know. So why don't you treat yourself to that dress? And I told him, you better cut that out, devil. <laughs> bought two dresses this week. I'm not gonna buy no dress. I'm not even gonna look at it. 
Devin said, well, why don't you try it on? I said, I'm not gonna charge, charge you nothing to try it on. I mean, that's free. You owe yourself a try on. <laughs> I said, Devin, you better leave me alone. <laughs> and he shoved me in the door. The devil just shoved me in that door. He pushed me in the door. I said, devil, stop it, please. <laughs> gonna buy that dress? I said, I'm not buying no dress, devil. And he pulled the gun. <laughs> devil pulled a gun and he threatened me and made me sign your name to a check. Rip said, well, look, said, how come every time the devil makes you do something, it's something for your benefit? When's the devil gonna do me a favor? And his wife tells him, he did already. I asked the devil about that. He said, if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't even have a job. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 